Turn with me over to the book of Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to continue our series, our series on preparing an on-ramp for God. Revelation chapter 3, the subtitle to the sermon is Open the Door. Open the Door. Preparing an on-ramp for God, open the door. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 14 through 22. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. John is writing, he's looking at things that are happening in front of him, and he's recording what he sees, the Apostle John. And he says, to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, have your way today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things about which I'd like to talk to you. One, the problem. Two, the solution. And three, the results. Here we've got a church that's in trouble. Church is in trouble. And Jesus is trying to help the church get out of trouble. The problem is the church doesn't know it's in trouble. The church thinks it's fine. The church thinks it's right with God. It has no clue that she is possibly as far away as possible from right relationship with him, though the people in her very well might go to heaven. They are clueless. And let me give you the backdrop to this church at Laodicea. The church exists in what we call the Lycus Valley, L-Y-C-U-S, in what we would now call Turkey. It was in the northern region of the province of Asia in the Roman Empire. And it bordered two cities. To the north, about six miles, was a city called Heropolis. To the east, ten miles, was a city called Colossae. Now, Colossae you might be familiar with in that it's the church to which Paul wrote the book that we have in our Bible called Colossians. In the book of Colossians, we have a reference to Laodicea. Though we don't have an entire letter written to this church, we do have a reference. In verse 16 of chapter 4, Paul tells the Colossians to take the letter that Paul had written to the church at Colossae and give it to the church at Laodicea. And then take the letter that was written to the church at Laodicea and make sure that the Colossians read it. Now we don't know whether Paul wrote the letter to the church at Laodicea, 
but we do know that he said, I want you to take whatever has been ministered there and put it in your house too. This, this is the only other reference we really have to the people of the Odyssea other than this passage here. Now this is the last of seven exhortations to the churches in Asia. And this is unique in that there is no commendation to this particular church at all. Even though every church had issues, they needed to get them some things right. Uh, the church at Philadelphia tolerated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And so God said, you've got to deal with that. Some of them tolerated the, the woman Jezebel in their church and, and immorality. And, but they all had something that God commended them on. At the church at Ephesus, he said, I know your deeds. You're doing good. You really, you have perseverance and you don't lack in diligence. And the church at Smyrna, he said, I know where you dwell. You dwell at Satan's throne. Now, that wasn't, that wasn't a, a critical statement. That was a wow statement. You're not afraid of the enemy. And you live right where he sets up shop so you can take people out of his clutches and bring them into the kingdom. You're amazing. Yet, he said, you're going to deal with some more stuff, too. There's more persecution coming to you. And you, you need to persevere. If you persevere, you're going to overcome. And if you overcome, I'll give you a brand new name. But if you don't, eh. And so there's commendation to every other. The prior six, something good is said. But to the church at Laodicea, nothing good is said. Which, though it's not very encouraging for the church at Laodicea, it should bring some encouragement to us. Meaning that if there is nothing for which God can bring any commendation to your life, there's hope. Meaning, you might look at your life and you have a lot of accomplishments which you might be proud of. But is there any that will pass through the fire and get to God? There's a fire through which we all must pass, if you will. Whether it's a metaphorical sense of burning or whether it's going through the grave and nothing of this earth gets to go through except you. Is there anything that you've done that passes with you? If there's nothing of commendation, if you can't look at your life and see any spiritual fruit, nothing that really God would stand up and say, amazing, that was good, then there's hope for you. Because there was nothing in the church at Laodicea for which God could give them praise. Nothing. And their problem was this, they, they, they were lukewarm. Now, in order to understand why God used this kind of imagery, because he didn't use this kind of language any other place in Scripture, you have to understand the situation, meaning literally the place at which the city was situated, in order to know why God was using this language. Again, to the north there was a city called Heropolis. To the east there was a city called Colossae. In the north, Heropolis had things that were warm springs, hot springs, things would bubble up and people would come there in order for therapeutic things to be done to their body. If they had maladies, arthritis, conditions, they would sit in these hot springs and the minerals would seem to provide some kind of healing. To the north of Colossae, they had cold springs. Well, spring, not so much springs, but streams which flowed from the mountains. The mountains would melt with the snow and come down and they had an ever supply of cold water. But in Laodicea, they had very bad water. Laodicea was built on trade routes. 
not on natural resources. Most cities are built on natural resources because every city knows they've got to have water or minerals or something that provides for the economy or provides for their natural sustenance. Laodicea was not built on natural resources. It was built on economy. So there were major trade routes, and at the corner of these major trade routes, somebody said, let's set up a city, and they called it Laodicea. But because they, they didn't decide to put their city by water, they had to, to depend upon the springs that bubble up where they were. And unlike Heropolis or Colossae, these springs were unpotable, were potable. Water was not drinkable. And every time they drank it, it literally made them sick and they regurgitated. Here we have water in Heropolis and water in Colossae, but bad water in Laodicea. And so Laodicea said, well, we've got to have water somehow. And so what they would do is they would pipe it, get some irrigation system from Heropolis and from Colossae. And as they began to pipe it, that hot water that came from Heropolis, by the time it got to Laodicea, what temperature do you think it was? A little tepid? Maybe lukewarm? And the cold water from the mountains that was icy by the time it got to Laodicea, once it flowed from its fountain, Colossae, what temperature do you think it might have been when it got there? A little tepid, maybe lukewarm? God uses the imagery that can most relate to the people to whom he's speaking. So he takes natural circumstances in order to make spiritual points. He says, you got a problem, Laodicea. You're lukewarm. I know your deeds. And you are lukewarm. And because you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, the New Testament translators from Greek to English, Greek was the original language of the New Testament, are very kind in the way they interpret the Greek word for spit. It actually means vomit. So if we were to use kind of the street version of what God is saying here, your lifestyle makes me sick. Every time I try to taste you, I want to throw up. When I taste of your life, it makes me gag. That's what God says. Now, it's important for us to do something here. Most of the time this passage is preached, it's preached with the idea that hot means good and cold means bad. That if you're hot, that means you're on fire for God. If you're cold, that means you really don't have much of a pulse. Yeah, you might be going to heaven, but your life isn't making any difference here on the planet. I would rather not use the metaphorical, gramma, metaphorical grammatic versions of hot and cold to mean good and bad. The reason being, God says, I would rather you be cold than lukewarm. So if he rathers somebody be cold, he would never. You can't find any place in scripture where God says, I'd rather you be bad. I'd rather you not have a pulse. That never. So rather than looking at the moralistic metaphors of good and bad being related to hot and cold, put that out of your mind for a minute. I need you to think differently. Think like this. Think influence rather than good and bad. Okay? Now, if you think influence, when you think of something that's hot... And you approach it like a hot tub. Do you, do, you, do you stand off about 15 feet and start running to the hot tub and just dive in? Jump in with both feet. How do you approach a hot tub? I'm talking to you. 
How do you approach a hot tub? What, what, what do you do? One toe at a time? Put that toe in there. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. You got to figure out how you're going to approach the hot water. I don't know if you've ever been to the beach here on the East Coast. In order for you to get warm water on the East Coast, you got to go all the way down to Florida. I mean, past Jacksonville. Really, the water doesn't get warm till you get to Miami, West Palm Beach. Then it's about 78 to 82. And it's really nice in the Caribbean. Oh, it's amazing in the Caribbean. But if you go swimming out here in Virginia Beach, <laughs> you better buck up. I mean, you better have some courage on you that day. Because when you step in that water, woo! And I'm really a wimp in this area. I confess. My wife and I, we go to the beach and we'll go into northern Florida, someplace in there like that, and we'll go on vacation and we have breakfast and we get out there and we get in our little lounge chairs with our virgin pina coladas, emphasis on virgin. And um, I, I'm not against drinking, I just want you to know how I do life. So, virgin, and so we're enjoying life there, you know. And, and then I say, I'm going to water. And I get up and I start going to water, and about 20 minutes later, I'm about knee high. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And Cynthia kind of looks at me with the temptation to say, you know, it's going to be lunch before you get in. <laughs> it takes me forever to get used to the water. I've tried diving in like some people, and I lose my breath. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. The shock is just so great. Now there are those crazy folk that do that polar bear thing. You know what I'm talking about? Open up ice portals and water in Canada and dive in. They're stupid. It is flat stupid. They're crazy. I don't know why they do that. But most folk don't act like that. They approach it differently. Grace Covenant, is there anything about your life that makes people approach you differently because of your Christianity? Anything about your Christian witness that makes people say, oop, 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 let me, I, I'm not comfortable with this. It's not the temperature I'm used to. Let, let, me, let me see how I can can fashion my life so I can figure out how I should address this person. Everything about you and your Christian witness ought to make people rethink how they approach you because you're a representative of the kingdom. You're an ambassador for Christ. If everything about you makes them feel so comfortable that they can, they can keep dropping F-bombs, and talk about their, their infidelity and, and fellowship with you over their night in the club, not thinking that somehow there's something on the inside of you that thinks it's distasteful. You're pretty lukewarm. And God says that kind of life, though you might go to heaven, that's not the issue. You don't taste good to God. You just don't taste good. So bad, he says, you make me sick. Now, why does he say that? Does it seem extreme? Not when you realize what he gave to get you right. The sacrifice he made. We're not talking about a change in philosophy. We're talking about a man giving his life. Jesus died on the cross for you. And he died on the cross for more than just you to get to heaven. He left you here so you could make a difference on the earth and help people. He's not asking you to go into the full-time ministry. 
He's just asking you to be either hot or cold. To be somebody that is that requires that people rethink their approach, that because they know you love Jesus so much, they have to change their language. That your light makes their darkness rethink. Your salt makes their corruption say, I can't go that way with them today. Now, they very well might have the boldness to just go ahead and tread in. Cool. You get in the hot tub anyway. You get in the ocean anyway. The approach is the issue. You want them to relate to you. You want them to jump in your life. They just know what they're jumping into. And at some point, you're going to impact them for good. Otherwise, eh, you don't taste that good to God. Problem. Second problem. He says you don't evaluate yourselves very well at all. You say you're rich. But, but, but can I help you? You're miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Now, how can there be such a disparity? How can somebody think, I got back? But, real, but, but the real reality is they got nothing, and they don't know it. How can there be such a difference of opinion? Because everybody judges what they have on the basis of the natural, not the spiritual. And though this was one of the wealthiest cities in all of the Roman Empire. Why? Because something about the grass in that area, though they couldn't drink the water in Laodicea, something about the grass with the minerals allowed for the wool to be extra soft. And... Something about the minerals that made the water undrinkable also allowed them to produce a dye that actually made the wool jet black. When most cultures couldn't get white wool anything but dark gray. But you could get it jet black only here in the Roman Empire. So if, if somebody had a jet black mink, you know where they got it from. You know what I'm talking about mink, I'm talking wool. Anyway. And everybody who, who wanted a jet black coat had to come to Laodicea to get it. Secondly, it was on the trade routes, and so everybody passed through there just to stop off and eat. Thirdly, something about the water allowed for ISAVs to produce a kind of medical school in the city. And this medical school perfected ISAVs so they could, they could actually heal people that had eye maladies. And so everybody that had an issue with their eye came to Laodicea in order to get help. And they exported all of their eye salve in little pouches so people could get help. As a result of these two unique things that did not exist in this concentration or quality in all of the Roman Empire, the banking industry was huge in Laodicea. The wealthiest city in all of Asia for the Roman Empire, Laodicea. This little town. So wealthy was it that they had an earthquake in the first century. The earthquake devastated the city. The Roman Empire said, we want to come and finance your rebuilding. FEMA showed up at the front door with a check. <laughs> Laodicea was so wealthy, they said, no, thank you. We'll handle it ourselves. Amazing. But they considered their wealth only on the basis of what they had naturally. And Jesus said this, don't store up, Matthew chapter 6, don't store up wealth where moth and rust can eat it, where thieves can break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where nobody can touch it and your Father 
considers true wealth there. That's true wealth. It's not what you have here. It's not who has the most toys in the end wins. You can't take it with you. Wealth is what you build up as a result of a life lived well here. That's true wealth. And God says he wants you to store it up in glory. Then you got to ask, well, what am I going to do with all that when I get there? I mean, what... Am I going to spend it on stuff? Is, is, there, is there a Walmart in glory? Where am I going to spend my, my, my wealth? The issue is not commerce. The issue is worship. Listen to me. Worship can never be properly done without offering. Are you listening to me? You're going to have to talk back. I think I preached you under the chair. You don't want to talk to me no more. Worship can never be done properly without offering. So if you say you love Jesus and, and your entire life is one that is to, to reflect Christianity, this is what worship looks for you like on Monday. Romans chapter 12. It is your spiritual service of worship to offer up yourself as a living and holy sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God every day. That is your... That's Christianity 101, that your entire life is to be offered up to him if you call yourself a believer. That's what worship looks like. When you come in here, to engage in worship means you are offering up the fruit of your lips. That's why we sing songs over and over and over again, so that you can get engaged without having to read. And you can begin to offer up from your own heart, not just what's on the screen, and say, Jesus, this is from me. Even though it's scripted, I want you to know I'm engaged now, and I mean what I'm singing. We lift up our hands because it engages our body. We want to offer him something, and our worship always offers. And so we lift up our hands as if we are lifting up our lives, saying, God, here. Well, what does this look like in heaven? We see the, the 24 elders in Romans chap, uh, Revelation chapter 4, and, and the 24 elders are worshiping at the throne. And 24 probably represents 12 tribes of Israel leaders and then the 12 church leaders. And they came together as a corporate man to talk about the people of God. And they were worshiping. And they saw the lamb. They saw the one who had been slain for their, their sin. And they, they had crowns on their head that he had placed there because of their good stewardship and rulership. And it says when they bowed down, they took their crowns and threw them down at his feet. Where did they get the crowns? They got the crowns from living right here. They had something to give them in glory. They could worship with stuff because worship always involves offering. There's a passage in, I think it's Revelation either 19 through 21. It says that Jesus will wipe every tear from, the heaven, from those who are in heaven's eyes. He'll, he'll wipe their tear away from their eyes. You ever thought why somebody's crying in glory? It's, it's, it's amazing in heaven. What you going to be crying for? Because you had no perspective here. Eternity is 10 billion years, and that's just the beginning. When you get there, this life will be a blink, and yet your entire existence was focused on this life. And you built up no reserves in glory with good deeds and offerings and giving to the poor. And so in your life for people that needed desperately to hear the gospel, you gave nothing while you were here. 
you got to heaven because you gave your life to him. You prayed a prayer, he forgave you of your sin, and he called you by his name. But you brought nothing with you. As a result, everybody else is offering because they sowed. They gave to building campaigns. They opened up orphanages in Africa. They gave their time and energy to children in the, in the children's ministry. They went down to Yorkshire Elementary. They, they gave to the homeless. When he was hungry, they fed him. When Jesus was thirsty, they gave him something to drink. When he was naked, they gave him clothing. And the disciples said, when did we ever do that to you? When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me and I remembered. People cry because they say, I ain't got nothing to give. I ain't got nothing to give. Beauty, beauty. The beauty is that he doesn't condemn. He just wipes it and says, okay, I got you. You got me. I'm trying, I'm trying to be a billionaire in glory. That's what I'm trying to do. So that I don't come empty-handed. That's why God wants us to be generous in our giving. Other than the fact that it meets the needs of people here and things get fixed and all kind of stuff happens as a result of your contribution. But God notices and he stores up stuff for you there. These people said, I, I got back now, baby. I'm cool. I am cool. I just tip God every once in a while. That's good. That's good. I, I let him know how grateful I am for making me blessed. Man, my house, I'm on crib. They're going to come do cribs on me next week. Mm-hmm. Come with a crew. You're wretched. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked and absolutely miserable. Focus on the spiritual, not the natural. I know a lot of mothers of three, single mamas of three, scraping by on $29,000 a year that are billionaires in heaven. Because they Now, the solution is this. He says, I advise you to do some stuff. When God gives advice, listen. Listen, when, he's, when he says, I advise you. You know, this is amazing to me. He is king of the universe. And he could tell us to do whatever we need to do just by command. And he's a gentleman. He says, I, I, now if, if you're looking for what I would do to fix this situation, this would be my advice. Buy from me gold refined by fire. Buy from me clothes, white linens, wool that you can cover your nakedness, and eye salve that you can heal your eyes. Now, why does he say buy gold? Because gold represents the character of God. It's the only mineral, at least that they knew of at that time, that has no corruptible force on the earth that naturally begins to inhibit what it is or tear it apart. That's why you can look on Discovery Channel and History Channel and see these Spanish galleons that sunk off the coast of, of Florida and Georgia and South Carolina. And they go in there and five, six hundred years later, they find gold doubloons. And they pull them out and they look as pretty as the day they were minted. Yet they've been in salt water for five hundred years. Why? Because salt water doesn't matter. But they find a silver spoon, can't tell it's a spoon anymore. So many barnacles, it's been messed up, it's gone. But the gold looks as good as the day it was minted. And there's something about the character of God that is incorruptible. 
and he wants you to have it. He wa- he's trying to get it to you. Now, he says, buy from me. His character is priceless. So what do you have that's worthy enough to make a purchase? <laughs> and and this, this amplifies who he is again. You live in South Riding. And your house is, okay, $425,000. Somebody comes to you and says, I'd like to give you $15 billion for your house, please. Do you negotiate about a moving day? How long does it take you to say yes? Because you know this don't make no sense. This does not make any sense. You want to give me what for what? This, this house isn't worth it. Okay, where do I sign? God says, I want your life. That's what you purchase with. Give me your life. But Lord, my life isn't worth your life. You're priceless. I'm worth less. Not invaluable. Just you aren't as worth. You aren't worth as much as his life. So you are worth less than his life. I'm, I'm worth so much less. You want to make... How does this benefit you? What do you... You get me out of it and I get you. How is this a good exchange? I'll take it though. Amen. Amen. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. Yet most of us are trying to hang on to our pitiful life. We're turning down $15 billion for, for our comfy bedroom. What's wrong with us? Buy from me gold. Buy from me clothes. I want to cover you. I know you make some pretty wool down there. I get that. But, but it still doesn't cover your sin. I still know what you've done. And it's not fixing the problem. I want to forgive you. I want to restore you. The kind of stuff I give covers all that you have done wrong and allows you to feel the sense of acceptance rather than rejection as a result of your sin. Every, every moment that Adam covered himself with his own fig leaf, he was separating himself from that which he needed, and that was healing. He was running away trying to fix his own problem. He needed to run to God as quickly as possible so God could cover him properly. Buy from me that. Give me your life and watch what I'll do with all your mess ups. And let me have, uh, let me have your light because I'll give you some eyesight. I'll cure your blindness. I know you can't see how poor you are. That's the problem. If you will give me the privilege of opening your eyes and curing your blindness, I will show you who you are, not so you can be depressed about what you are, but so you can also understand what I want you to become. I want to heal your eyes so you have a vision for who you are and what you can't do. I made you in my image. You marred it, but I'm going to fix it. Let me give you some eyes, This is why Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you might know the reason he put you on the planet. Ephesians 1.18. Until that time, you're blind. And repent now. He says, you got to change. The way you get all this is that you change. You were going that way, you choose to go this way. Repentance means to change your mind, to no longer go in the direction in which you were going. Go 180 and go that way. You're not going to do what you want to do anymore. You're going to do what I want you to do. You're going to follow my will, not your own. And do it with zeal. Don't take six months to try to figure out what this needs to be done. Do it now. Do it with zeal. Hurry up. 
and open the door. How, how much longer are you going to leave Jesus out on the stoop? He's sitting there on the front porch. Some of y'all left him out there for 25 years, 30 years, 40 years. <laughs> Again, the, he is so gentlemanly. He's God Almighty. He could bust the door down. He could do what he wants to do. He'd be right in doing it. But he's sitting there waiting for you to open because he's looking for an on-ramp into your life that you can build. He's looking for a way in whereby he doesn't have to wreck everything. Just knocking, knocking. And why? Because if you let him in, he said, I will come and dine with you. He's not just going to come and judge you. This is the way I think it ought to go. We read the Bible with an understanding of God's forgiveness and mercy to such a degree that we forget how the story ought to read. I know your deeds. I, you are lukewarm. I wish that you were cold or hot. Because you are not cold or hot, but because you, you're, you're lukewarm and you're not hot or cold, I vomit you out of my mouth. You say you're rich, but you're really poor, miserable, blind, naked, and wretched. And I want you to know I've had enough. It's over. I'm pulling the plug. That's the way we would have it read. Because if you were God, you couldn't handle all the folk that don't like you. All the folk that won't do what you, what you want them to do. All the folk that do wrong all the time. And all you do is give them mercy and kindness. At one moment, you just wake up on the wrong side of heaven's bed. I'm done. Bye. And yet he stands outside knocking. I don't know. I mean, every time I read passages like this, I got to say, I don't know you very well, God. I've been walking with him 34 years. I'm thinking... You're bigger than I thought. You're more merciful than I ever conceived. I'm not worthy. I'm just, you're amazing. So he, sent, he says, open the door, and I'm not coming in to judge you. I'm coming in to eat with you. Eat your nasty food. <laughs> it's your house. You're the one who's preparing. He said, I'm coming in to eat you. Yeah, I'll fellowship in all your filth, your junk. Nah, I'll clean it up. I'm coming in to help. I want a fellowship. I want a dining was one of the most intimate things you could do in the ancient world. Still is in the Middle East. I want to dine with you. And then lastly, if you let me do this, I'll give you the privilege of sitting on the throne with me. Even as I sat on my father's throne with him. He grants leadership. And we're not talking about leadership over people. I know you'd love that. To control and deal. You know, give me some power. I want to tell some folks some stuff. It's leadership over your own heart. It's rulership over your own life so that you can have more victory than you've ever had. We are so messed up. We are so messed up that we are happy with ties. You know what a tie is, right? In competition when you don't win or lose. Thank you, Jesus, I didn't curse her out. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do it. Lord, thank you so much. I didn't sleep with her. Oh, whoo, hallelujah. 
we are so happy that we didn't mess up, that we think it's victory. When there is no victory, because we didn't do, we didn't do anything to score for the kingdom. We just didn't lose. And we are happy with ties. That's how messed up we are. If we just didn't do something bad, hallelujah. Victory ought to be your portion. It's what you ought to believe for every day. That you are advancing the cause of Christ in your life and in the lives of those that you influence. Everybody who comes around you feels like they are better as a result of being around you. They may not feel comfortable. They may not even like you very much. But you are indelibly imprinted on their brain every time they go to bed. In the silence of their own thoughts, there you persist with your Christian witness and the highest and best standards of conduct. And they can't run away from it even when they don't see you. You're making a difference on this planet. You're advancing the cause of God in the earth. And as a result, wins happen all the time. Oh, you're not perfect. You blow it. But in NFL terms, you're 12 and 4 every year. Basketball terms, if you like NBA, you won 60 games. You lost 22, but that's all right. You in the playoffs. You in the playoffs. Baseball, you won 110 games. Yes, you lost 52, but that's all right. You won 110. You won twice as many as you lost. Nobody calls any team in, the, in those positions losers. They define them as winners. And Christianity should be that which defines you as a winner and that you can rule over your own soul because Jesus has now given you authority to sit on the throne with him and guide your conduct to the best possible end. This is how we overcome. When we build an on-ramp that allows him into our lives, when we open the door and say, come in, I repent, I don't want to live the way I've been living I'm blind, I want to see. I've clothed myself with my own excuses. I choose to take the clothing of your covering and be covered for good. I choose, O oh Lord, to repent of my sin and to give you my life. The great exchange happens and he takes your shack and you get his mansion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking for your grace and mercy. Inspire and bless everyone here. Pour out your ability and hope that everybody here can actually be.